Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got my low-key host, Darcy, with me tonight. Low energy. <laughs> right? Yeah. We're pushing through. We're making this happen. I am not supposed to be drinking, but I am. I'm drinking I am. water. <laughs> pushing through and like my boyfriend is out of town until tomorrow so i am living it up and partying hardy until he returns which i'll probably party when he returns too i was gonna say don't you do like sunday fun day we usually do so i think i'm just gonna go ahead and do it and just risk it because you're not supposed to have any alcohol a week before surgery yeah because i guess the, the alcohol in your system like creates inflammation and makes it harder to heal or something well it's that and alcohol is a nervous system depressant so when they're gonna put you under they're actually not putting me under i'm just gonna be under i'm gonna be awake during the whole procedure so i don't really think it's this is critical right i i don't think so but i don't know good times i've never been awake i'm gonna hold hold you personally liable (laughs) for giving me this advice dr darcy Here's the thing. You're going to send me this email to edit, and I'm just going to cut this uh, out. No, so. don't cut this out. This Nobody is will so ever know. fun. I am freaking loving this. Am I going to have to call you Dr. Darcy as soon as you graduate? No. no <laughs> I think I want to call you Dr. Darcy, though, because it gives you just this air if you of would like, like to, amazing like intelligence. <laughs> Anyway, poor decision making. Right? All of the above. <laughs> Before we get started on the topics for today, which we have two awesome topics to talk to you guys about, we're actually going to talk a little bit about the Michelle Carter case. And I know we've brought it up in previous podcasts. This was the young woman who was basically prosecuted for encouraging her boyfriend to commit suicide. And evidently, she got a relatively short prison sentence related to her Mm -hmm. responsibility in encouraging her boyfriend via text to commit suicide and just freaking do it. She was very, very harshly criticized for good reason. But she recently was given the chance to, um, to have parole. So I found this article. This one was on people. I thought she applied for early parole. Yeah. She was trying to get out of prison early. So this article is Michelle Carter jailed for urging boyfriend suicide is denied parole because she lacks sincerity. The article is by Greg Hanton or Hanian. The article came out in People magazine. Basically, it says Michelle Carter was jailed after encouraging her boyfriend to kill himself in a series of text and phone conversations was denied parole after she asked for early release. She was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter and sentenced to 15 months in jail for her role in the death of 18-year-old Conroy Roy, excuse me, Conro- Conrad Roy III, who was found dead from carbon monoxide poisoning in his pickup truck on July 13, 2014 in the parking lot of a fairer haven massachusetts kmart she served presently about seven months of her sentence the board claimed in quotes it is troubled that miss carter not only encouraged conrad roy to take his own life she actively prevented others from intervening in his suicide said the massachusetts parole board in its decision which was obtained by people magazine Miss Carter's self-serving statement and behavior leading up to and after his suicide appear to be irrational and lacked sincerity, they say. 
She needs to further address her causative factors that led to the governing offense. Carter had asked the parole board for early release in a closed door hearing this week, but she was denied that parole, according to her, her attorney. Um, the thing is with this case, she was 16 at the time that this happened and she was, he was about 17 when he died and given her age, her attorney says, and mental health issues, she was struggling at the time. She has conducted herself within the confines of her release. So I believe she was an excellent candidate for parole, but by no means is she a danger to society. I think there were people who disagree because in hundreds of texts and statements that came to light after Roy committed suicide, Carter, who was 17 when Roy died, was revealed to have pushed him to go through with the act. The judge found her guilty, citing her written admission to a friend that she told Roy to get back in the truck after he stepped yeah. out and shared his last minute fears in a call to Carter before he died. That's... That's the hard... I mean, it's all hard to, to reconcile with, but that's the hardest part to reconcile with is that you had another opportunity she had to help this dozens person. of opportunities to help this guy, and she continually right, pushed... Right, but, like, this is, like, we have one last, op, you know, like, explicit opportunity that she could have helped this person, and she instead not only didn't help, told him to get back in the car and, like, peer pressured him into doing this. Police also say that she deliberately misled friends in the days and hours before he died, claiming to them that he'd gone missing at the same time that the two of them were in contact. She absolutely did nothing. Mm. It's just disgusting. I find this girl, yeah. her actions just unforgivable. I think she should have got the, the freaking book thrown at her. I don't think she should have gotten a year or 18 months or whatever. And I'm glad that they rejected her parole bid. She should not have gotten early release. She's a monster. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like she is remorseful even now. No. She's basically like, oh, I had all these issues. Bitch, please. Yeah. You are a monster. You need help. Keep going in this. And the thing is, I don't think that prison is a reformative measure. She needs serious counseling no. to deal with she these kind of issues. Help. Because, yeah, she's got issues, but that in no way excuses her behavior. She needs help. They need to right. get her some serious fucking help. Right. This poor boy, like, if somebody had stepped in and helped him, he mm -hmm. nev this never would have happened. Gosh. And the thing is, she hid all of it. She didn't tell them. She had a responsibility. If you know somebody is mm -hmm. thinking of committing suicide, you have a responsibility to tell someone. There are so many right. resources that are out there right now that could have prevented this. If she had just opened her mouth and instead of being a unfeeling, uncaring, crazy bitch and just told the right people she could have saved this guy's life. And instead, she encouraged him but to kill himself. But it's not even that she just didn't tell anybody. She told him to go through Yeah, she hit it and she encouraged him yeah. and stood on the sidelines and said, kill yourself, which is fucking disgusting. Yeah. yeah. And I think she should get longer than 18 months. But anyway, that's my personal opinion. But she was denied parole, so it looks like she's going to have to serve out the remainder of her sentence. Aw, pobrecita. Yeah. I feel so bad for her. I... I hope that there's some kind of therapy, psychological help that she's getting, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. I think she should, I think prison, I think prison's appropriate. I think she should be punished. But at the same time, I think she does need help. Yeah, she needs some serious you know? help. She needs therapy, like big time for the yeah. rest of her fucking life. Because this is disgusting. The whole thing is disgusting. Anyway, um, 
let's get on to the real issue that we're going to talk about today. A couple of months ago, we had an episode that came out called Four Women, One Fate. And we talked about this particular woman and the fate that she encountered or that we think she encountered because they have never found her body. Right. But there have been some recent developments in the case, and I thought it would be a good idea to cover it in a little bit more detail than we covered in the initial four-person case that we talked about. So I got a lot of the information on the episode today from Dateline NBC and a lot of articles online. But in any case... This particular topic is about Jennifer Dulos, and this has been very controversial in the news because it is a very interesting case, and it has been going on right now. It, this is one of the summer's biggest missing person cases, and these headlines were literally splashed across the news mm-hmm. everywhere. But Jennifer Dulos disappeared from New Canaan, Connecticut, which is a very wealthy, very peaceful community. It's sort of a bedroom community outside of New York that a lot of New York business people live in. Jennifer was the mother of five, and she seemed to have everything at her fingertips. Her kids were in private school. She came from a very wealthy family, and she was married to a man who seemed to have his act together as well. She dropped her children off at school and then disappeared. So I think this kind of struck a chord for a lot of people in our society because this could have been any one of us literally Mm -hmm. could have she was 50 years old she was a new yorker she was married to a man named fotis dulos she was raised on wall street with that money that wall street money Mm -hmm. she grew up in new york city off fifth avenue in greenwich village She had that big money, that privileged life, but she was very humble, according to her friends and family. Very educated. She graduated from undergrad and then went on to pursue a master's degree at NYU. She studied writing. Her friends and family say she was soft-spoken, intriguing, and intelligent. Hmm. So... It's an interesting way to describe something. Yeah. So 2004 was when she married Fotis. He was a classmate from Brown University. They met each other during undergraduate, but really didn't pursue their relationship until after their undergraduate degree was completed. Fotis was raised in Athens, Greece, and this was his second marriage. Together, once the two got married in 2004, they had five children with two sets of twins wow all of the kids were very athletic and very outgoing they skied and water skied that was their sport of preference and they were actually trained to be national champions at water skiing from a very young age and Fotis and Jennifer lived in the upscale Connecticut community of Farmington and Fotis was a award-winning luxury home builder, and he built these amazing custom homes. Their house was a six-bedroom, seven-bath home built by Fotis, and it was about fourteen hundred square or fourteen thousand square feet. That's wow. a big fucking house. Yeah. During this time, Jennifer did not need to work, but she did a lot of writing and blogging about being a mother and a wife. 
and really kind of enjoyed that. She would tell little amusing anecdotes about raising her children and about being married and how great her life was. That is until she discovered that Fotis was having an affair. Ugh, shocking. Right? I think that is a story that is familiar for many women. She discovered that Fotis was having an affair with Michelle Traconis, who was a 44-year-old international businesswoman and an Argentinian ski resort. Hmm. So, when Jennifer found out about this affair, initially she just, I think she wanted to save her marriage. And she stayed in the relationship for a few months after she found out about this affair and then eventually decided in, on June 19th, 2017, that she was done. And I think this was... Well, it didn't sound like he was giving up the other relationship no. either, right? And I think yeah. he was trying to save his marriage and she was trying to save her marriage. And the thing is, when you've got history like that and you've got five kids together, it is not necessarily the easiest to just drop the relationship and move on. Yeah. But Jennifer decided on June 19th, 2017 that she was finished and she packed up the five kids and left her 13 year marriage. The only problem was she left without telling Fotis. At that point he called 911 because he was, the kids were gone. She had packed up everything mm -hmm. and left him while he was at work. And he comes home to mm -hmm. find this huge, massive 14,000 square foot mansion empty and all the kids and their things gone. The next day, Jennifer filed for divorce and essentially filed also for a restraining order, which was denied. This oh, really? yes, this was a very ugly divorce for them there was a lot of filings there was a lot of contentious allegations jennifer basically made it clear to everyone and anyone around her that she was afraid of photos she mm -hmm. claimed in her words in the filing that he was irrational unsafe bullying threatening controlling and that she was afraid of him and she was terrified of the revenge fantasies that he seemed to have and that she was sure that he would enact if and when she filed for divorce. And didn't she also put in the filing that she was afraid that she knew he had a gun and that was part of her being afraid? I did not hear about that part, but there are literally pages and pages of yeah. her saying that she's afraid of him and she filed a restraining yeah. order to prove that as well but because he was a member of the community you can listen he has commercials out there online that mm. talk about his business i think that given his involvement in the community and the 13-year marriage they denied her because she was not able to conclusively prove that he was violent and a threat to her and the children right. which happens right. i think a lot you may be afraid yeah. of somebody, but sometimes it can be very difficult to prove those things to a court of law because you usually have mm -hmm. your word against theirs. You don't typically record the interactions and no one had seen her being threatened by him or any kind of violent behavior with right. him. And there were him. no photos of like injuries or anything, or anything like, that. like that. Correct. Yeah. So friends basically agreed that they thought they knew she was afraid of him. She had mm -hmm. basically made it clear to everyone and anyone around her that this was what was going on. Okay. 
This divorce between them crawled along for about two years in which, you know, they're filing back and forth. They're trying to divide assets. This is not uncommon in high asset divorces like Mm -hmm. this one where there are there's a lot of property. There's a business involved. There's the division of assets that sometimes can take years and years to complete. Well, and then there's working out child support and spousal support and custody and, issues as well yeah which was a huge contentious factor in this divorce because jennifer didn't she wanted primary custody and she did not want photos to have mm-hmm. as much visitation as i'm sure he wanted in this i am relatively positive that he was going for 50 50 custody and she was going for primary and that he was going to mm-hmm. have secondary custody of these children but During this period, Fotis insisted that Jennifer was dealing with mental health issues. That's where he's starting to try to lay the groundwork on this. But her family and the spokesperson for her family denies that Jennifer had any mental health issues. And there really is no proof from anyone besides Fotis that she did have any sort of mental health issues. At that point, Fotis starts living with Michelle. He moves her into the Farmingham mansion, which had previously been shared with Jennifer. This is this 14,000 square foot Mm. monstrosity. And he's like, hey, I'm living by myself in this massive house that I haven't had to sell yet. Why don't you move on in? It's my understanding that Michelle had a daughter as well and that they moved in together and started this new life. And then at the same time, Jennifer is starting fresh with her five children in New Canaan. Then, in 2017, or excuse me, then Friday, May 24th, 2019, Jennifer drops the kids off at private school at 8 a.m. and then disappears. Fotis claims up and down that she disappeared of her own accord, but her friends and family insist that she would absolutely positively never leave her five children. At the same time, her suburban was also missing and was found at a local park on the side of the road. This park that the suburban was found in was about 300 acres with lots of places to search and multiple canine units were brought in to search for a body, but they did not find anything and there were no security cameras in this park. 300 acres is such a yeah, large area. Yeah, it's huge. And they interviewed anyone and everyone they could in this area and could find no leads. At that point, they go and do a welfare check on the home. And they find a substance that looks like blood in the garage. This is in Jennifer's In Jennifer's home. home. So the, Jennifer okay. had this home in New Canaan that she had moved the children to when she filed for divorce from FOTUS. So there are is blood found in the garage. Police do not disclose anything. They're keeping everything tight to the vest at that point, but they start searching ponds in the park and they start putting up posters and start really, really digging into the research to try to find Jennifer. Initially, police focused their investigation on Jennifer's new Canaan home and the park nearby where her vehicle was found. One week after she was reported missing, investigation takes a major turn when police start looking in Hartford, 70 miles away from New Canaan, because the state police, U.S. Marshals, and the FBI have taken over Fotis' cell phone and computer 
and start finding out that his cell phone is pinging off Hartford, Connecticut cell towers during the time that Jennifer disappeared. So they're like starting to investigate this very rigorously at 7 PM. The night Jennifer disappeared, they find video camera imaging from streets and intersections that show person they believe to be Fotis and Michelle dropping off garbage bags and containers into cans and dumpsters and into sewers. They also see through these cameras that a black Ford F-150 Raptor is the vehicle that is making all these stops. The police say that according to the video images that this vehicle made between 30 and 40 stops after 7 p.m. on the day that Jennifer disappeared. Fotis then becomes the prime suspect, but police decline to release any of that footage. They're keeping things very close to the vest. The media is reporting on it, though, because they find out that Fotis was found stuffing a FedEx box down a storm drain. So the cameras see them dropping off this FedEx box. Any guesses as to what's in the FedEx box? No, I don't want to guess. I have a feeling it's like um like a seven situation. No, they dig around in this storm drain and they find fake license plates inside. What for registered vehicles that are registered to Fotis? I never would have got gotten there. So he essentially had put fake license plates on this vehicle when he was making all these stops in Hartford, Connecticut to dump off the garbage bags, etc. Wow. The police managed to fish out most, but not all of the bags and containers that Fotis allegedly, and again, I want to say alleged at this point, this has not gone to trial. He has not been convicted of any crimes as of yet. This is such a recent case. So... Does that mean that at one point, presumably, he went around and stole a bunch of license plates? No. There was one license plate in there from a vehicle that he had doctored to make it out to a different license plate. But the, the oh. they, after finding this evidence in the license plate, they discovered that the original license plate, before it was doctored, was registered to FOTUS. Oh, I see. Got okay. it? So they're connecting that yep. to him. The investigators then start to search through this trash that he had allegedly dumped, that cameras caught him dumping, and they find... What do they find? Want to guess? Again, no, I'm afraid. (laughs) Clothing. Cleaning. Sponges. Yeah, like stuff with blood on it. Yeah. Everything in this tested to Jennifer's blood. There is a shirt... Exactly like one of the ones that Jennifer loved to wear, that it is well known by friends and family that she wore on a regular basis, along with a bra. And at that point, they also find Jennifer's blood in areas where they presume that someone tried to clean it up. And then they also find Jennifer's blood mixed with Fotis' DNA on a faucet in her home. Hmm. Her home that she moved into after she left him. So, like, Correct. he wouldn't have a lot of reason to have his DNA There's there. no reason his DNA should be on a faucet yeah. in her home, particularly if she was afraid of him and did not right. want anything to do with him anymore. But nine days after, and they discover all this crap, they track Fotis and his girlfriend, Michelle, to an Avon, Connecticut hotel, and they arrest both of them. 
They do. They okay. do not charge them with murder, though. They charge them with hindering prosecution and tampering with evidence. Okay. So, so I have a question. Yes. So, you said the the surveillance video they have of the of of photos driving around and and you know throwing away the stuff at the the, the garbage right. stuff, right? But their police are not releasing that to the public, right? So when he's charged with hindering, hindrance of, what is it? Hindrance of a prosecution? Right. Hindering prosecution and tampering with evidence. So did they have to release that surveillance video to his lawyers as part of discovery, even though they haven't released it to the public? I am pretty sure that they had to at that point. Okay. And I'm sure that in the court documents, which are typically publicly available, they did not specify exactly, but they said that there was evidence that showed certain things. And that's probably how the media. But they would have to show the video though, to the to the his attorneys, right? Right. Because it's okay. it's evidence. Just curious. But okay. I'm sure the media was able to figure this out because they're they're smart. Right. They know. But in any case, right. Michelle and Fotis both plead not guilty, and they're both held on $500,000 bond. And then the judge orders no further contact between the two, who are presumably living together at the time, which must have been a very difficult thing to try to stomach between the two if they're a, in a relationship and are all of a sudden told, hey, you can't right. have any contact with each other. But at the same time, you don't want them to coordinate their stories any exactly. further. Michelle makes bond. But at that point, Fotis does not. And it's starting to become mm. evident that he has perhaps some money issues. Because in oh. a $500,000 bond issue, only $50,000 is required to get yourself out of, out yeah. of prison. Because you just have to pay 10%. And he couldn't come up with that. So it's starting to become evident that, that Fotis had some money issues. Motive. And additionally, they discovered that Jennifer's family has filed a lawsuit saying that they loaned him about $2 million for his business, which he has never paid back. Whoa. And he... Second motive. He is insisting wholeheartedly <laughs> that this was a gift given to him and Jennifer upon their marriage so that he could support her and their family. $2 million. Yes. Just a gift. Right. And a week later, yeah. Fotis manages to come up with the bond... And both him and Michelle are given ankle bracelets. People that have that kind of money don't give out that kind of money as just gifts. At the same time, Michelle met with prosecutors back and took them back to Farmington to the house. And this is while Fotis is still in prison. And she is showing investigators around. Now, she refused to comment on this and would not grant any interviews. But they could see via drone and helicopter that she was giving investigators oh. some kind of a tour at the house police also said no comment and at this point several weeks later a random kind of homeless guy finds a bloody pillow and a knife <gasps> in one of the bags that supposedly photos dumped that they were unable to recover until this man found it allegedly he sold the knife for drugs so they couldn't. Oh my gosh. They couldn't grab that knife and throw it into evidence. You can imagine that if he has dumped garbage bags into multiple vessels on dozens of streets in different locations, it could be practically impossible to come up with every single bag that he dumped. Oh, yeah. Because you got to imagine when he's cleaning up, he probably put it into dozens of little, you know, those plastic shopping bags and sort of thought that, hey, if yeah. I dump these all over the city, that no one is going to find 
that I did this. It's like what I do with, like, when I tear up a check. I tear it up and I put it in, like, three different trash cans. Right. <laughs> and then as well. But, like, with evidence of a murder. I think that he also knows at the same time that prosecuting without a body is very, very rare. And to actually win mm-hmm. a, case, a murder case without a body is extremely difficult. That's crazy that this guy found a bloody knife and sold it. Who buys a That's bloody a knife? Drug addict, street dude. <laughs> I'm like sure he cleaned the like, blood off of it and was like, "Hey, this is a sweet knife. I'm gonna make some money to get some crack or some meth." That's. But I think wild. what became very controversial about this case is that Fotis's attorney, and we kind of discussed this the first time that we talked about the case. Yeah, this guy's this a piece guy of is shit. a complete shithead. He basically alleges that Jennifer orchestrated her own disappearance and that she basically this, by the way, just as a point of reference, this is also the same guy who represented the Sandy Hook was a fake guy. The guy who's alleging online that Sandy Hook was all Alex Jones. He represented him. So he's got a history of representing douches that no one likes in the media. Wow. And he's also saying, hey, they haven't filed any murder charges. So my client may be a primary suspect, but they haven't filed any charges because they don't have any evidence. Mm. Fotis claims he was at home during the time of the killing, even though he was observed at around 1.30 p.m. dumping bags. And his phone was in Harvard. Got it. And then he claims that the blood on the kitchen was from Mr. Dulos, who was in the home a few days prior and it was only a very, very small account or amount of blood that the housekeeper missed, and that there was a legitimate reason that Photos was in the house because they had two kids was together. He just doing some yeah, he work. came in to like pick up the kids or whatever, and that the relationship was amicable between the two. If you listen to the, <laughs> it's really funny. There is a um, Dateline NBC interview where they actually talk to Photos, and it just sounds so disgenuine. And they interview yeah. Fotis, interview Fotis, and he's like, oh, I believe she's still alive. She's out there somewhere. I think I read some of the quotes from that interview on the previous episode we did. Yeah, it's disgusting. Um, he claims that the cameras that captured the images of Fotis in as many as 40 stops were basically stops of his car, that he was there, but that he was only stopping at traffic lights and stop signs. And that... <laughs> And just throwing out trash at yeah. traffic light and stop And that signs. any images don't conclusively prove that it was Fotis or his license plates. That it was too blurry to really make out conclusively that it was him and Michelle. For presumably being a high-priced lawyer, he sounds like not a great lawyer. He's just like throwing it all on the wall and hoping one of those yeah. spaghetti strands will stick. But the detectives and police claim that everything is perfectly clear and clear enough for them to make out license plates, etc., he has excuses, though, for everything. This freaking attorney is like a total disgusting piece of shit. And basically at that point claims that this is a gone girl type of scenario, that Jennifer was a writer. And that is true. Her master's degree was in a writing associated type thing. And she was a writer. So I get that. Mm-hmm. And he says that she wrote a manuscript script 
and that she was desperate and frantic and that she was able to do something like this to prevent Fotis from having more time with the kids. That she was so jealous and so enraged that he would have time with the kids that she was willing to do anything to prevent him from having that, including making herself disappear in a Gone Girl scenario. But they had such a good relationship that he was in her home fixing her plumbing or whatever yeah. the fuck that his DNA got yeah. on the faucet. And he's like, she was creative got it. and Checks she out. may have killed herself because she had mental health issues. And so they had a good relationship, but so, to the point where she was, he was in her home yet she did not want him to have custody of the children so badly that she set him yes. up for murder. This all Jennifer's family is okay. completely outraged because they claim that not only is this novel, ha- it has absolutely no parallel to gone girl the one that Jennifer wrote, but that it was written Mm -hmm. 17 years before her disappearance and 10 years before Gone Girl was published. And I believe you already mentioned that when we went over the story initially. Yeah. Yeah. And that the events in the book Gone Girl are virtually impossible to do if you tried to do them in real life. And that Jennifer would have never left her children ever. This just was not a thing right. for her. Maybe if they had no children together that she, maybe, but with five children that she loved desperately, there's no way. And the thing is, they're claiming, hey, she's desperate to keep all custody of her children and not allow him any. So she's going to she disappear. disappear. So everything about what they're saying right. is completely contradictory. Fotis yeah. in his interviews is just so ridiculous. He's like, oh, I believe she's alive. Surprise, surprise. Whatever. He also claims she was a good mother and that he won't comment on any speculation as to his involvement in the killing. He'll just let his greaseball attorney yeah. comment and on it. And he claims, that. oh yeah, we just grew okay. apart and our divorce was amicable. We were friendly with one another. He was completely taken by surprise by everything that happened, including the divorce filing, that they'd had no violence or arguments between the two of them and that the money given to him... The $2 million for his business was a gift, not a loan. And that the divorce was the only negative thing in his life and that the kids living with him was something that he he wanted, but there was no um, anger and no bitterness between the two of them for custody issues. Mm-hmm. The kids are now living with Jennifer's mother and they have been banned from seeing Fotis after his arrest. Good. He claims he's cooperated with everything and given him everything that he want that they have asked him for and that there's no reason that he should be a suspect at this point. Except for the two million dollars. But several weeks ago, and this is a new development in this case, police filed additional charges against both Fotis and Michelle on another charge of tampering with evidence. Details. This is very, very interesting because the police believe that about 8.05 a.m. that Jennifer pulled back into her driveway in her home after dropping the children off. And they believe that Fotis was waiting for her at that point. And this is according to the, the documents filed with the court. They believe that on the morning of her disappearance that around 10, he had killed her and done all this. And around 10.25, he cleaned up. And then drove Jennifer's body in her own SUV to where he dumped her. Wherever it was that he dumped her. Okay. A hundred feet away, photos from the um, location of her vehicle. Photos saw a red Toyota Tacoma pickup 
Okay, so they found this pickup a little ways away from where Jennifer's SUV was parked on the day of her murder. So they tracked this this additional red Toyota Tacoma into this case. That mm-hmm. truck is seen driving back and forth to Farmington towards the Fotis's property. They trace the license plate on that red Toyota Tacoma and find that it was owned by one of Fotis's employees. They confiscate that truck that is linked to the crime scene and find Jennifer's blood inside that vehicle in the door of the truck. Whoa. So that is the point where the police charge both Jennifer, or excuse me, both Michelle and Fotis with additional charges. And they have... How did they bring Michelle into that? I'm not exactly sure. I think it's still related to the fact that they were together at that time and that they both confessed to being together at the time that that truck was found and suspected to be a vehicle that Jennifer was bought. Jennifer's body was in at some point. Right. Okay. They're both released again on bond and both expected in court soon to plead to these particular charges. Evidently, the kids are doing okay now. They're very active in day camps. They're making new friends. They're getting counseling. But this case is ongoing. There is no trial set as of yet. But I wonder if they will ever find Jennifer's body. What do you What do you think? I don't know. I mean, it sounds like every day they get closer and closer to being able to file murder charges. But I don't know if they'll recover ever recover her remains. I mean, it kind of... The obvious... The obvious thing is it sounds like she's somewhere within this 300-acre park. Right? I don't know. But I think he may have buried her on one of his properties. And he just left the car there to yeah. mislead? I think he took her body to one yeah. of his properties because he's a, ve- a property developer. Bury- and buried her. Yeah, with, like, new yep, construction Buried her under the concrete somewhere, and they'll never find her body. Wow. And this is ongoing. We'll provide details as they continue to come in. And the thing is, I think he sort of believes that if they can't ever find this body, that they'll never prosecute him. I don't know. It sounds like they're getting closer and closer. Like every day, it sounds like they have more information. I hope. And, And it truly sounds like Michelle is about to flip. It does. I mean, if she went in and gave them a tour of that house... I mean, maybe they're right. offering, and the, the likelihood is that the prosecution is offering a sweet deal to avoid jail time, and she'll flip. Right. But this yeah. is. It's just finding whatever it is that, like, maybe they're still offering jail this time. This is so right recent. Now, it's so current. Saying, I mean, like, this just yeah. happened this summer, and this is ongoing in the court system now. And sometimes the um, plea bargain and those sorts of things take months to get ironed out. So I'm sure yeah. that we'll find more information in the upcoming weeks as to this case and what's going on. Yeah, I I hope I do hope they are able to find her remains to bring that closure for her family and for her children. I'm glad her children are not with photos. Yeah. I'm glad he doesn't have access to those It's just you children. hear the case, you yeah. hear how his attorney talks, and it just it makes you cringe. Because it's yeah. almost like he thinks he's above the law and he can do what he wants. It honestly sounds like Michael Cohen. Yeah. Like, he just seems like a sleazy ambulance chaser, like... Yeah. attorney who somehow represents all these yeah. people with money. Yeah, it's gross. Um, we will provide details as they continue to come out on this case. I have yeah. another case, though, today that I kind of want to get into that I find 
almost as appalling as this last case, but for a different reason. And I know that you, Darcy, have never probably heard of this case, but this is the case of Jenner Gerardo. Okay. Okay. This came out a relatively recent case, and I got most of the information from a 2020 episode that came out September of this year. Let's start at the beginning. Mark first meets Jenner. She is 16 years old and he is 18 years old in the suburbs of Philadelphia. They met in the summer of 1986. The 80s were a wonderful time. There was a lot of feathered hair, a lot of brown jumpsuits. (laughs) She was a Taco Bell worker and she had that sweet brown uniform, which I'm sure he fell in love with instantly. And that's where he first (laughs) met her. He thought she was cute. She had a great big smile, these pretty blue eyes, but they never got together. He didn't really have the balls or the courage to sort of pursue her at that point. They were both in school together. They went to the same high school and he saw her in school choir. They were in choir together and he never really pursued her or got into a relationship with her when they were in school together. But fast forward four years and she finally goes up to him and says, are you going to ask me out or what? So she, she makes oh, the first move okay. because clearly he is a little bit tentative when it comes to relationships. And he eventually asks her out. He gets off his ass and realizes, Hey, she's a great girl. I've got to get this. got to get my shit together. They end up marrying in 1993. So stereotypical eighties okay. relationship that leads into a nine early nineties marriage, which how wonderful, right? Sweet. I'm just imagining the sleeves right? on the dresses of the wedding. It was probably amazing. Jenner mm-hmm. is outspoken. She's a rule breaker. And she basically knew that Mark was the one almost immediately after meeting him. She told all of her friends and family. And she was just this gorgeous blonde beauty. And if you look at pictures of her, she's a very attractive woman. The two of them throughout their marriage had a good, by all accounts, a good marriage. Um, They talked about kids, but they never quite pulled the trigger on that. And instead they had two golden retrievers, which I ain't mad at you. Okay. Yeah. That sounds like more like my deal. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And again, I want to qualify all of this by saying that this story came out this year and that it's all from Mark's opinion and Mark's state of view, Mark's state of mind, Mark's viewpoint, and with the occasional interjection of family antidotes. Jenner okay. is no longer here to tell her side of the story. So you have to take that with a grain of salt. Okay. During the marriage of Mark and Jenner, they start to have some pretty epic battles. Evidently, Jenner has some pretty intense reactions to things, and Mark says that Jennifer had to win every fight. It was knockdown, drag out, but the number one stressor for them was money. Particularly, mm-hmm. which right, is very common. Particularly when the economy took that downturn in 2008. So the two mm-hmm. of them struggled big time until that point, and then they moved and settle into South Carolina in 2011. They explore and develop their relationship and they both are in marketing. So Mark calls this the renaissance of their relationship, but right. It just makes me want to throw up. 
But Jennifer at that time lost her job. So this was an additional stressor for them. And she is really, really struggling to find another job and struggling with her her identity. And she's approaching her 40s and she's been married to Mark and they don't have any kids. So I'm sure she's dealing with a lot of very stressful issues in their relationship. And they just recently moved. Yes. No, no. They had settled in North Carolina before, but 2011 is when she lost her job. So they'd been in, excuse me, they'd been in South Carolina for a while. They'd been there and settled in and, and that's when she lost her job. So, oh, okay. fast forward, both Mark and Jenner decide that they need a fresh start. They had the one fresh start to South Carolina, but they'd been there for a few years. And then in 2018, they decide, hey, we need to make another fresh start. Both of us need a new jump in our career. Mark finds a position for creative director at the University of Delaware. So he's interviewing for this job and finds himself interviewing with a a woman named Meredith Chapman. She is the one that's doing the hiring. And Mark does a little bit of research and reaches out directly to Meredith Chapman to get an interview with her and introduce himself. Kind of take the bull by the horns. I have heard about this. She's like in her 20s, right? She's in her 30s. Okay. I have heard of this. So Mark is concerned. Because this woman who will now be his boss is 15 years his junior. And he considers her to have Mm -hmm. much less experience than him. But within five minutes of the interview getting started, he is completely enamored with her and considers her wildly accomplished. And he actually gets offered the job. He's super excited because he's like, hey, I'm going to be able to start with this new fresh start and I've got this awesome job with this dynamic incredible woman and he goes back home and shares this information with his wife and they watch the solar eclipse together and reflect on their marriage and talk about how wonderful everything has been until this point and all the lessons they've learned this is what he says okay that's a weird detail that they watch the solar yeah, eclipse together it, just, it sounds like he's um remembering he's getting some a little details. bit like waxing poetic on it He's gearing uh-huh. up to move, but Jenner is staying behind at their South Carolina home to pack up and to get some new renters or leasers or whatever into their home. And she's going to come in 45 days. Okay. So he's getting this head start where he's finding a place for them to stay at and he's starting his new job and getting all settled in. And then she's going to come later. So okay. she's in South Carolina and Mark is in Pennsylvania. Okay. Mm-hmm. With his boss, who is 15 years younger than him. Mark is completely in awe of his new boss and his new team of coworkers. He's just like, this is the most amazing thing that has ever happened to me. Meredith is amazing. She is a university marketing director, a former candidate for state senate, the wife of a former city councilman, and a former television reporter. So it sounds like she's got... Damn, she is Fucking everything going for her. She is married as well. Um, and her husband is, by all accounts, very accomplished as well. So she's this driven young professional who has achieved quite a lot in her relatively short career. She was also named mm-hmm. in the 40 under 40 for Delaware. Okay. So she's accomplished. I've seen <laughs> pictures of her. She's a pretty girl. Mark and Meredith hit it off almost immediately. They have so much in common, and after the first few weeks together, she supposedly asked Mark out for a drink. Again, Meredith is no longer here, and we're going to get to that in a moment. So this is Mark's account 
We have no idea if mm-hmm. she did indeed actually ask him out or if he asked her out. We don't know. But right. They go out for drinks and they hit it off. He tells her, he basically pours his heart out to Meredith and says, you know, he lost his father and his brother and he's gone through this change in his life and he's about 49 years old. So he's hitting that fucking midlife crisis that most men do at that age. And this is about four weeks after he met her that they get to the point where they're doing drinks and talking about his personal life. And he says he talked about his marriage with her as well, but not in a negative way. Yeah, right. (laughs) He basically claims that he only talked to her about some of the incidents that happened. Says that with Meredith, he felt alive again. And he just really felt like he could open up to her, you know? Like, she was so easy to talk to. And he claims that he was very confused when they started dating because he felt bad that he had not broken off. That he was was married married and had not broken things or been honest with Jennifer or Jenner, his wife. And at the same time, he had also applied for a job in Colorado um, shortly around or shortly before or around the same time that he accepted this Delaware job. And so he goes for the interview Mm -hmm. just to kind of see how that Colorado thing would play out, but decides this is the tipping point and that he is all in professionally and personally with Meredith. So he... Tells the Colorado people, I'm not interested, and calls Meredith from the airport to be like, hey, I'm in this. Let's do this. Let's fucking do it. And then what does Meredith's husband have to say about all that? Well, Mark and Meredith start a whirlwind romance. Evidently, he doesn't have much to say. She claims that she'd been married for nine years. or He claims that she had told him that she was married for nine years at that point, but that she had not been happy for the last three years of her marriage, and that... Everyone else that interviewed and looked into this case said that she had been living alone, allegedly, at the time that this whole thing happened. So her marriage was breaking up. Okay. Okay. Keep in mind, all this is happening only a couple weeks into these guys knowing one another. Mm Mm-hmm. He also claims that Meredith has been telling him consistently that he's amazing and talented and filling his head with all this crap whatever right totally he's a totally, wonderful totally. man and he claims he never heard anything like this from his wife jenner jenner never uh-huh. told him he was wonderful she never appreciated him she never loved him blah 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 she just all she did was just kick him and spit him for the whole much. marriage yeah so and jenner isn't in pennsylvania so he is basically acting like he's a single man and telling meredith that he loves her and that she supposedly returned all of his affection only one month after meeting. Okay. Totally. So he also at the same time claims that he still loved his wife of 24 years. But that it was different. And they began to question his... Yeah, that And that he began to question his marriage. Jen Eyre is then moving to Delaware. And this happened in January of 2018. So she's like, okay, we did these 45 days. The house is all wrapped up. I'm moving. We're going to start this new life together. But Mark's in a fucking relationship. <laughs> so she gets there and she's like, I, I, something is different. He's distant. There's something going on. She's like suspecting. And this is the fucking women's intuition. And she confronts him, mm-hmm. suspects that he's cheating and confronts him. And she says she knows that he's got someone and he denies, denies, denies. 
He's like, no, no, no. And then she even specifically says that she thinks it's his boss, Meredith. And he's like, no, no, no. It has nothing to do with her. That. But I still love you so much, wife right. of 20 years. That I'm lying right? to you. So she's yeah. like, this little radar is popping up all over the place. But then, interestingly enough, she seems to have all kinds of information that Mark says she could not possibly have known about. Like specific details of conversations that he had with Meredith that she could not know about unless she was there. It turns out Jen Eyre is actually recording his conversations. Hmm. She's got recording devices that she's set up to record the specific conversations that he's having with Meredith. Jen Eyre then says that she has absolute proof. And in Valentine's Day 2018, she says she has undeniable proof that he is having an affair and she confronts Mark. In the meantime, he figures out that she has hired a company to clone his phone, his pictures, his texts, his calls, <laughs> etc. So she's like on it. She knows that he's like doing dark deeds and right. she's got proof. At that point, Mark can only basically spill the beans. He can't deny it. Like she's yeah. got the fucking proof. She's like, yeah. hey, I cloned your fucking phone, which is creepy. But at the same time, like if you need proof to be like, hey, this relationship is over, whatever. But at the same time, Jen is completely taken aback because Mark says they should go to count marriage counseling to save their marriage. He's mm. having an affair with this woman and gets confronted with it and, and then is like, okay, we got to save our marriage. Let's go to some counseling. This Mark fella sa- sounds uh, a little manipulative. Yeah. I think he's basically lying to both women, telling Meredith that he's yeah. going to leave her, his wife. And that the marriage is over. Yeah. And then he's telling Jen Eyre that, hey, the marriage is good. You know, we've been together for 24 years. Let's We can fix this. It's nothing that we can't fix. Right. I think he was telling both women a completely different story. But, yeah, okay, that's so what we're getting like. more details in here. On the way to the counseling session, he finds a recording device in his coat. It's a very <laughs> small little device. And basically, at that point, Mark realizes she has heard everything he has been saying with Meredith and that she's bugged him and cloned his phone and like she knows and that's how she knows mm-hmm. Meredith he confronts Meredith or excuse me he confronts Jen Eyre with this information and cl- she claims I just wanted the truth you've been lying to me you've been saying we need to go to counseling and I just wanted to know what was up for real which I don't fucking blame mm-hmm. her because to me that says he was lying to her the whole time and telling her that their marriage was good and that they were going to fix it I think, like, I, I, see, I see your point, but at the same time, I feel like if you're in a situation where you're that disbelieving, either because you have proof or you just because you don't trust him, that's kind of a tipping point. You need to Like, leave. I don't know if you can yeah. come back from that. Well, yeah. in any case, Mark claims that Jen Eyre wrote his boss about the affair and tracked down Meredith's husband and told him to. And that okay. at that point, he'd had about three sessions with her in this marriage counseling and decides, hey, I'm done with this. Um, as soon as I hit my residency requirements in 2018 in May, we're going to file for divorce. So he tells, okay. he claims that he told Janair at that point that things were done and that they were heading for divorce and that he also conveyed that information to Meredith. Both Mark and Meredith start looking for new jobs and new places to live. Meredith actually accepts a position at Villanova as a vice president. 
she's got her shit together. She's moving forward. She actually gets a divorce from her husband. Jen Eyre, in the meantime, is freaking out. She's in a new city. She's got no job, no friends. She's basically moved here for him. And then he's basically saying, mm-hmm. hey, our marriage is done. And later days. I would freak out, too. Yeah. She starts seeing a divorce coach at that point, which I didn't even know was a fucking thing. Yeah. But she's basically talking with this woman as a counselor about the dis- dissolution of her 24-year marriage, which I don't fucking blame her. Even with someone for 24 years, it's not simple. The counselor right. claims that they mostly talked about good times, that she loved Mark and was in complete shock by this dissolution of their marriage, and that she was basically very upset because he was trading her in for a newer, younger model. Age-old yeah. story, right? She also had fears of being left financially and felt that the decision that Mark had made was both selfish and immoral. So she's conveying all of this to her counselor, but not like in a... I don't disagree right, with not that. Not like in an extreme kind of way, but she's saying, these are my concerns. A fight erupts mm-hmm. between Mark and Jenner, and then he flips a table in his violent anger, and Jenner evidently at that point claimed that she was going to jump out the window. So he says she was clearly oh. suicidal, even though no one else that talked to her said that they got the vibe that she was suicidal. He okay. claims at that point he encouraged her to talk with her friends and family to get a counselor, and that she told him that she had did what he told her to do and that things were getting better between the two of them, even though he supposedly said the marriage was ending, but they were still living together amicably. He also mm-hmm. says that Jen Eyre supposedly gave him a list of demands at that point to, in order to end their marriage amicably, that they were going to live together until May and spend as much time as possible, have di- dinner together, et cetera, et cetera, which makes no fucking sense to me. Yeah. Why would you do that? He claims he let her have her way so that everything would be normal and that he could get out of this as easy as possible because it had already been very, very stressful just, for him. He sounds like such a stand up right? nice guy. Um. Yeah. But then you hear these conversations because Jenner actually recorded her own conversations with him as well. And you hear her saying she is mad mm-hmm. at the other woman that is basically living her life. And you get the sense that this is not as amicable as Mark is claiming it is. Shocking. April 23rd, 2018. Mark has a new job. and He's looking for another place to live. And it says Jenner has made peace with their divorce. In the meantime... Meredith is now completely divorced. She's got a new job and a new house and everything is going well for her. She's posting on Instagram that's saying she is truly happy. And that is the last post that you see from Meredith. Mark okay. and Jenner plan to have dinner and talk about their divorce on that day as well. Mark gets to the restaurant and waits there for Jenner. She texts him shortly after he arrives and claims that she has made a wrong turn and is going to be late. Ten minutes later, she still is not there, but she texts him that she is not coming. Go ahead and go home. Then she sends him a picture of trash, including a condom that is conveniently placed in the middle of the trash. And she claims that Mark knows what this is all about. Immediately, Mark says he thinks she is at Meredith's house and is going through the trash to look for more proof of their relationship, which... Makes me think Whoa. that maybe he was not telling her that their marriage was over and that perhaps 
Jenner was actually looking for proof that he was still seeing this woman that maybe he convinced her right. he was not seeing anymore. Right. Then she gives him three rapid texts in a row. The first text says, you ruined my life. The second text says, hope you never find happiness. And the third one says, bye, Mark. Mark says that at that point, he freaked out thinking that there was a confrontation going on between Meredith and Jen Eyre. He starts texting mm-hmm. Meredith and there is no answer. So immediately, instead of going to his wife and trying to figure out what's going on, he rushes over to Meredith's house. He walks mm-hmm. in the back door and sees Meredith on the floor, on the kitchen, face down. He calls out to her and mm-hmm. is like, why isn't she responding? And sees blood on her calf. At that point, the neighbors get involved as well. Meredith has her keys in her left hand like she has just come into the house. And he still can't figure out what the oh, fuck wow. has happened here, right? Then they see Jen Eyre all in black with a wig on. What? He claims she was on the ground as well. He claims he ran to her saying, baby, what have you done? Neighbors don't really agree with him on that one. But both women are on the Mm. kitchen floor dead. What? The front door has an inner door broken pane of glass closest to the door handle. So it's obvious that someone has broken into the house. Mark loses his shit because they consider him the prime suspect. (laughs) With both women laying on the floor dead because they don't see see the murder weapon. But eventually right. they find the murder weapon, which is a 357 caliber revolver with two rounds fired, and it is under Jenner's body. So she, the police believe that Jenner broke into the house and waited for Meredith, murdered her, and then turned the gun on herself. Oh my God. Mark claims at that point he was completely shocked. Friends are stunned. He's like, I don't know what to do. This is some crazy shit, and starts digging into her past, her bank accounts, her emails, etc., and sees that Jen Eyre was living a double life. He says she was telling him, we're over, I'm getting on with my life, and that she was never violent, she was an anti-gun person, an animal advocate, etc., but yet neighbors reported that a woman in a trench coat with binoculars had been stalking Meredith for quite a while. Whoa. He starts going through Jen Eyre's bank accounts, computer statements, or computer history and all that, and finds hundreds of devices that she's purchased with, or excuse me, finds dozens of devices that she's purchased with hundreds of hours of recording of literally thousands of conversations. And she has transcribed every single one of them into 12 notebooks. So all Mark's conversations into 12 notebooks. Oh my God. That had to have taken so much time. Yeah. So her bank statements say that she had secret credit cards. She had purchased lock picking kits, DNA testing for his clothes, recording devices, GPS trackers for both his car and Meredith's car. You can see that she's tracked the vehicle. She calls his line jerk and hers whore. Oh, wow. And then he finds the receipt for the gun purchase, which was marked March 20th, about five weeks prior to the murder. In the meantime, you start to look at this and you see all of Jenner's social media posts show them as like this amazing, perfect couple. Yeah. It's just like such a contradiction. And 
the divorce coach is like weighing in on this and saying this was all normal. She was planning for her future. She was looking for new jobs. She was trying to find out a place to live that she had no indication that Janair was losing her shit. But at the same time, Janair had taken three trips to the firing range to learn how to fire this weapon. And that the last hours before she shot Mara, that she was actually contacting Mark from the shooting range. Oh, wow. And she left a letter, a suicide letter, it appears, that she had started weeks before her death. And it basically says in the letter that her husband was the center of her universe. And that, you know, she loved him tremendously and that their marriage crumbling was like the worst possible thing that could ever happen to her. But Mark is saying, oh, listening to the tapes, I can see that her listening to my conversations like unwound her and angered her to the point where she lost her shit. And that that's what caused her to become suicidal. And that she killed his Meredith because she claims that killing his girlfriend would harm him the most. Hmm. In the meantime, Mark claims he misses both women. You don't get to miss both women. (laughs) He says that he wrote letters to Janera saying that she, that he forgives her for how she treated him and etc. But she does not, he does not forgive her for killing Meredith because she murdered someone. Right. So in the meantime, Mark sold everything he owns and drives cross country. Guess what? He lives and works in San Diego now. Oh, is that right? Yeah. We should go bring him up, see what he's up to. He's a creative director for some resort company since 2018, after the murders. Hmm. And he wrote a book called Irreparable, about mental illness. And says that he hasn't forgiven himself yet for all of this. And his Facebook posts are, like, so crazy. They're like, oh, here we are. I'm widowed. And here's pictures of me and my dog in wine country. Hmm. And claims that he did not write the book for fame and fortune, that he basically has donated all the money to suicide charities, that it's really to highlight depression, PTSD, mental health, and claims that all of his royalties will be donated to a charitable organization that supports suicide prevention. Wow. Okay, so he does not name a specific organization, first of all. And second of all, what do you think? Do you think he was bullshitting her the entire time? Yes. That he was lying to both women? Yes. Because I got the sense that he was like a complete fucking bullshitter, that he was playing both women, that he was having the time of his life with this younger woman, like, oh, she makes me feel new and alive. But at the same time, he couldn't break it off with Jan Eyre and was telling her, hey, we're going to make this work and we'll get counseling and everything will be fine. I don't know that he was necessarily lying to Meredith. He was definitely lying to Jan Eyre and saying that he was going to leave Meredith when he clearly had no intention of leaving Meredith. Wait. And actually working no. on their No, Meredith is the mistress. Jan Eyre yes. is the wife. So yes. I think that he was telling Meredith, the mistress, hey, I'm going to divorce my wife. Everything's going to be fine. We're going to be together. And he was telling Janair, the wife, that, hey, I'm breaking things off with Meredith, that I want to fix our marriage. So he was I, playing both sides of the fence. I agree with that second part. I don't, I have no, I don't know if he was lying to Meredith. There's not a, enough information for me to think that one way or the other. But I definitely think he was lying to Janair and saying, I'm going to leave her. I'm going to work on this marriage. Let's go to counseling. When he clearly had no intention of, of doing that. Well, he was never living with her or anything with Meredith. He was just like fucking around mm-hmm. with her basically. But mm-hmm. I think that he was like having a midlife crisis and was like, hey, I'm 50 and I have to make myself feel better. So I'm going right. to go fuck a 30, 30 year old chick and then I'll feel better. Right. I mean, I'm just saying, I don't know if he was like saying to Meredith, I'm going to leave my wife for you because 
Like, I know it's not very far, but she took a job in Villanova, at Villanova, which is in Philly. So, that's a distance from Delaware. It's not very far, but that's still, you're moving to another state in another town. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. Maybe she was like, whatever, I'm not staying around for you. I'm bouncing. And if you want to see me again, you can come to Philly. But I don't know that he was necessarily telling her, like, I'm going to leave my wife. We're going to be together. You know what I mean? I think Meredith was a strong, independent woman and was like, you fucking do whatever you want to do, but just make your decision and let me know when you do that. She wasn't putting her life on hold for him. But I do think he was trying to play both sides of the fence. Like, he was like, hey, like, I'm going to. Yeah. Until, you know, it came crashing down. And I blame him for all of this. I mean, yeah, it's. He is the catalyst for this, but. But Janair was clearly, clearly severely mentally ill to wrap herself up in the in her marriage so much so that she was unable to function and she developed like an obsession with the affair to where she was but listening she to thousands of hours. show anybody that. She didn't indicate that to her counselors, her family, or she anybody else. She clearly was, though. They found the notebooks and all the recording devices. Right. She clearly like, was. She hit it. She hit it well. And the thing is, to me, like, I have so, such a mixed reaction with this case because I look at pictures of Jen Aaron. She was a beautiful woman. Like, go find someone who appreciates you. Get rid of this loser mark. And, like, get your life going. Have a renaissance for yourself. Find somebody who's going to do you right. Don't well, be with this douchebag. Well, that's why I think that she mark. had, she, I mean, she clearly had a mental break. And she had, she was wrapped so much, she was wrapped up so much in this marriage that it was unhealthy. Like, that's an unhealthy level to, to, to be in a relationship. Yeah. To where, it's like, you sad. cannot function with, when that relationship goes wrong. And, I mean, like, yeah, Mark, Mark, like had the affair but he didn't I don't think you can so clearly say he pushed her to this limit she pushed herself to this limit right but he fucking moved her out from her home and I'm not saying he's not in the wrong I'm just saying you can't like that's got enough to unhinge anybody you come all this way you move from not like that job and then you get there and he's like oh sorry hey I don't want to be with you anymore and you don't have a job so like peace out that's so much more than unhinged. I don't know. I feel like did. I would have had I would have had a similar reaction. I don't think I would have gone and killed somebody, but I would have been seriously pissed off if somebody. But that's that that's love... the difference, though. Like What's that's the, the difference? difference is being pissed off versus killing somebody and then yourself. That's the difference. I I would have done some damage. Let's not get me wrong. I would have like you know trash trash something, but I wouldn't have murdered. That's anybody. the difference. Like that's what I'm saying. That's the difference. She had she was she had such an unhealthy relationship with him i probably confronted i would have confronted this woman and been like hey you know i've been with this guy for 24 years what the fuck is going on like do you not understand that he's married like he's telling me he wants to fix this shit i would have confronted her not in a violent way but i would have confronted her and had a conversation with her and made sure she knew what was up i mean do we know that she that she knew he was like still married did he tell her that they were separated did he tell her she wasn't the wife wasn't coming around? Do we, we know? We don't any know of that? anything. That's the thing. We hear, we hear Mark's side of the story, and Mark says he claims he was completely transparent with everyone on all sides, and I just don't believe it. I don't fucking believe it. I think he's lying, and he's in the wrong to have an affair. But like, I don't think you can say that he pushed her to this. She pushed herself to that. 
So it's a sad story. I mean, I yeah, it's really sad. And the thing is, it's one that you do not hear often at all, because yeah. nine times out of ten, the woman is not the aggressor. The woman is not the murderer. The woman is not the one in those sorts of circumstances who is committing crimes like that. And it is but, very, very rare to hear something like this. But when it does happen, it is, it's very similar to the scenario in that, Oh, the woman confronts the other woman. Now it may not, right. it, it's not typically a murder suicide, but no, it does happen. Won't where a kill woman the, man. Right. Yeah. the man will kill the woman, but the woman typically won't kill the man. She'll kill yeah. herself or whatever. It's just, ooh, it's a doozy. Yeah. It's a doozy. And, you know, when you add in the factors like this hidden life and the fact that she recorded everything and wrote it out in notebooks and, like, clearly had this plan to, like, stalk her husband and hear every detail of what was going on, including the conversations she had with him herself and write transcripts of that is incredible. Like, that's more than that's more than just needing proof of an affair. That's that's an obsession to where she sat down and transcribed all the conversations. And the fact that she hid that shit so yeah. well from everyone, her counselors, her friends, her family, and no one suspected that anything was other than normal. Right. It's, it's very, very sad. And yeah. I'm, I'm troubled to hear stories like this. And I just want to say that if you or somebody that you know is considering violent action or suicide, please, 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 and we'll put this in the show notes as well, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline the number is 800-273-TALK. You can also text with them. They have a text line. It's 741-741. Or go to suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Please, people, if you suspect someone or you yourself are feeling these sorts of feelings, don't hesitate. Get some help because this case is obviously a very clear outline of what happens when people that need this help don't seek it out. And... That 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 suicide prevention hotline is is accessible twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah, so don't so. be afraid to reach out for people because yeah. this could literally save a life. Yeah. So we're gonna wrap the episode up on that note. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please shoot us an email. We love getting emails from you guys, even if they're, you know, somewhat critical or telling us about a correction. We're happy to read through those and discuss them with you guys. Social media, Darcia. (laughs) Social media, Darcy. (laughs) We are at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. And our email is... Dun, 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 the BFD podcast at gmail.com. Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>